please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that on the Blue Pew Bible under your chair, the chair in front of you on page 977. I would encourage you, as I have been these last several weeks, to keep your Bible open if you can, uh, because we are going to be flipping to a few different passages as we go. Today we are in week five of our six-week series through ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The first week we answered the question, what is the church? And then weeks two, three, and four, we discussed the church's authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven through the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the ordinances. We answered the questions, what is baptism, what is church membership and church discipline, and last week, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, this week we won't be answering one question in particular, but Lord willing, we will be answering several questions, all revolving around authority within the local church. Questions like, who has authority within the local church? How do they exercise that authority? How far does their authority extend? And other questions undoubtedly arise from these. So my hope is that the scriptures will give us a clearer picture, not simply of the existence of authority within the local church, but how God has designed it to be used properly, wisely, and therefore effectively. Because to state the obvious, and we all can see this in our day and age, the abuse and misuse of authority is a real threat that extends all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3, if we're honest. We see it in the secular world, and we've also seen it within the church, this abuse and misuse of authority. But I want to be clear up front, just because you, someone you know, or someone you've heard of has abused or misused authority delegated to them, that does not mean that authority itself is inherently evil. Authority, as it was designed by our Creator, is good. Just thinking of Genesis 1 through 3 here, God, who has ultimate authority as creator and sustainer of all that is, created a man, Adam, and gave him authority. He made him federal head of creation, the representative king, to rule over all of God's creation as his representative. There was a created order of authority, God as the head of man, man as the head of woman. But what happened? Well, Adam as we know, failed to exercise his authority as he was called to. The snake usurped this authority as he deceived the woman, Eve, and Eve gave to Adam, and Adam blamed God, and we've all since received the curse of sin and death. Authority was created good, but as we can already see from Genesis 1 through 3, mankind is sinful, and their use of authority is not always good. So to make the connection from what we've seen over the past several weeks to this morning, I'd like to point our minds back to Matthew 28. You don't have to turn there, just think with me, okay? The great commission from Christ to his disciples. There we saw Christ, having died and risen from the grave, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by the Father. With regards to the proclamation of this gospel and the making of his disciples in his name, that is the building of the church, Christ has delegated authority to his church. We've talked about the local church's authority in that regard already, an authority of recognizing who is in or who is and who is not a disciple of Christ. But this morning, I want us to look a bit deeper into what the scriptures teach us about authority within the local church because Christ 
builds his church and has built her in such a way that she would flourish until he comes again. So with that, turn with me to Ephesians 4. We're going to read 1 through 16. We're going to start here this morning. Ephesians 4. Paul speaking to the saints who are in Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two main points for us this morning. It's kind of deceiving, but two. First, three spheres of authority. Three spheres of authority. I believe the New Testament lays out three different spheres of authority ordained by the Lord as it relates to the local church for the maturing and overall flourishing of the church here on earth. We'll look at those three. And the second point, harmony under authority. Harmony under authority. We'll close our time looking at how these spheres of authority are to function properly together and what that produces. Spoiler alert, harmony in the body. So first point this morning, three spheres of authority. The language of three spheres comes from two theologians I've been studying on this by the names of Stephen and Kirk Wellam, brothers theologians, if you didn't believe it. I think this language is appropriate for our discussion of authority as opposed to, as opposed to tiers of authority or, or levels of authority. So we're going to use spheres language. There are three spheres of authority we see in the scriptures as it pertains to the local church. First, the authority of the head, Christ. Second, the authority of the body, the church. And third, what I'm going to call appointed authority within the body, that is, elders. Every sphere is necessary. Every sphere 
has a purpose. Every sphere contributes to the overall health of the local church. So first, authority overall, authority of the head. The head, as we've seen in Ephesians 4, is Christ. Let's think about what this means. Here in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says this, We, the church, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, this isn't the only time Paul, in Ephesians, refers to the headship or authority of Christ over his church. Arguably, this is one of the main themes that he lays out through Ephesians. Paul initially brings up Christ's authority with reference to the church in Ephesians 1, verse 22. Look at that with me. He says this, And he put all things, the Father, put all things under his feet, Christ, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. In Ephesians 2, if you skim right over there, what we read this morning, what EJ read for us, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes that the church, or or here the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Now, important side note, to keep in mind, we saw his headship in Ephesians 4.15, what I just read, Christ the head of his body. But look at verse 7 of chapter 4. What does it say? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And verses 11 through 12, Christ gives gifts. Christ gave his church gifted persons for the building up of the body. Now note. Gifts and gifted persons are given by Christ. By Christ. Now back to the head language. He brings up Christ as the head once more in Ephesians 5. Look over here with me. In order for Paul to appropriately define the authority and submission relationships between husbands and wives, he defines the relationship between Christ and the church. So let's read this and I'll emphasize some things. Follow me starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, here he's defining Christ in the church, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That means that she might be blameless, perfect, pure. Verse 28, in the same way, so he defined Christ in the church, and he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body, He who loves his wife loves himself, and this is interesting, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul, throughout Ephesians, makes Christ's headship over the the entire cosmos in general and over the local church in particular very 
clear. Indeed, this is what God intended for Adam to be as the head, to function as a prophet, priest, and king over his creation, but Adam failed. This did not nullify the necessity of mankind's role in these offices. It's just that because of sin, no man ever could fulfill the righteous requirements to be all three. But as we've seen, Christ, the second Adam, true Israel, did fulfill all that was required to become the perfect prophet, priest, king. And through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he was given proper headship. That is authority over all creation. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 1, and everything else about Christ's headship flows from there. With that in mind, I think we can formulate three simple truths about Christ's authority as our head. Okay? First, the first truth at the most basic level, and it should be unsurprising to us at this point, is this. We see that Christ indeed possesses authority over his church. Christ has authority over his church. He is the head of his church. And to clarify even further, he is the only head and the ultimate authority over the local church. Someone may ask, when did Christ come to possess this kind of authority? What makes him authoritative over us? Well, that brings us back to Ephesians 1, verse 19 and 20. If you want to flip there, you can, but I'll read it. What is the, the Father is revealing, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? This actually connects us back to everything we've already been discussing about Matthew 16, Matthew 18, 26, 28. Jesus has received all this authority because he alone has accomplished our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. Not only did our perfect God become a man, but as a man, he lived the perfect life of obedience in our place. It was through his living, through his dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, through his rising from the dead, that the Father was subjecting all things under his feet. Christ The God-man earned this inheritance. That is all things at the cost of his life. The one that he lived and the one that he laid down, including his possession of you and I. And as the conquering prophet, priest, and king, the head over all things, he commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to him by faith. Because it's only in him that we can have life. And he is a compassionate Savior, compassionate enough to offer it to anyone who believes. To those who believe, he brings them into his body. To those who don't, he puts them under his feet in judgment because he is head over all creation. Christ has ultimate authority, and it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be reallocated. It will not be removed. He will retain his authority for eternity, and will exercise it either by judgment or in glory. Have you considered your need for Christ this morning? Whether you know him or you don't, have you considered how much we need him? You may not think this way now, but you want to be in his body. And we as Christians gathered together want you to be in his body. That is, that is to repent of your sins and trust 
in Christ by faith, to be made one with him, a member of his body, united in him, assured in him, protected in him, secured eternally in his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Father handed all authority to Christ after he accomplished our redemption. He exercises authority over all things. But in particular, he is head over his church. That's the second truth. We can see not just that he exercises authority, but why Christ exercises his authority. Here's the truth. He does so for a purpose. And that purpose, as we learn from Ephesians 4, is for the building up of the body. Christ exercises his authority for the building up of his body. Christ saves the people to himself. He builds his church. And that doesn't just mean he's building it numerically in the sense of he's saving more and more people into it, but he's building it up in maturity. He's making the members of his body look more like himself. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is, after all, the will of God, our sanctification. Christ doesn't just save us from God's wrath, but he saves us to God's holiness, both in justifying us, that is, making us holy at one time by faith, and then commanding us to live holy. He is, after all, the head. And like our brother EJ has said before, I can't forget it, where the head goes, the body follows. Christ is building his body, sanctifying her to look more like himself. Third truth, we learn how Christ is exercising his authority over his church. Yes, he's building. Yes, he's sanctifying it. And according to Ephesians 5.25, look at there, he's doing so out of love. He's exercising his authority out of love. Verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Down to verse 29, Christ is nourishing and cherishing his church because we are members of his body. He's not domineering over us. He's not compulsive. He's not quick-tempered with her. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's encouraging his church from his love. And this is 100% what we would expect from the God-man who in Matthew 20, 28 says this of himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's serving us even now, church. The church needs Christ to be the head. She is utterly dependent on Christ for life because Christ himself is the very source of our life together. He is the one who saves us. He's the one who brings us together. He holds us as members of his body together. He's the one who gives the church gifts for her growth, her building up. Truly here, we should see that Christ is overall, through all, and in all. The head of authority over his church, the source of her life, her gifts, the very reason behind her being built up. And we praise God that he's doing this. We praise God that Christ is our head and is doing these things in us. It goes to the second sphere of authority. First was authority of the head. Second, authority of the body. The body is the local church. We could even say the congregation. That is just the, the gathering of Christians. Look back at Ephesians 4.12 with me. Just really simple. We can just gloss over that. But look here. It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In this context, the gifts are given to the church by Christ so, so 
I would take these saints to be those that compose the local church. And the assumption here is that Christ gives every local church all the necessary gifts it needs to govern itself, to exercise appropriate authority both within and without. So what is this work of ministry that the saints are to do? that Paul's referring to, and, and how does it all, this all relate to all this? Well, this work of ministry is that of the entire church. And the authority of the church revolves around what? It's exercise of the keys. Look at the rest of verse 12. The work of ministry includes the building up of the body of Christ, Verse 13, to attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of Christ, to attain to maturity, to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, discernment and doctrinal fidelity. Verse 15, speaking in love, growing up into Christ. Then lastly, verse 16, when every member of the one body is working properly together, the body builds itself up in love. In all these ways, the saints together are doing the work of ministry, exercising the keys on and with one another. Every member of the body is vital to this authority because Christ is not only the head of the church corporately, okay, hear me, corporately, he is our head, but he is the head of every member individually. Because what has Christ done? When he saved us, he united us to himself. He redeemed our humanity as our perfect savior. He restores us and calls us to do what we have been created to do, to exercise authority over his creation. Except now it's with and in and through him. Because we can't do it on our own. So to make a clear truth statement about this, we could say this. <coughs> Excuse me. The many members work properly together because each, through faith in Christ, has been made a priest of God and is indwelt by the Spirit of God. This is because Christ is, Christ is our covenant mediator, the second Adam. Again, our prophet, priest, king, he alone has reconciled us to God. Through him, every single one of us has access to the throne of grace, and we do not need any other mediator, whether that be a priest or a clergy or a presbytery or any pastor over us. We can go directly to God because of Christ Jesus. Each one of us has direct access to spiritual wisdom, discernment, and maturity because of the spirit that has been given to us that lives and dwells within each of us. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says this, but you, he's speaking to the exiled Christians in the dispersion, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been made into a royal priesthood. Each one of us in Christ, a priest to God through Christ. Having individual access to the one God, forgiven by him, filled by his spirit, led and sanctified by his spirit. And because the new covenant church is composed of this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests as we've seen, 
in which every member is filled with the Spirit, we have all been called and equipped by Christ as our head to do the work of ministry together. Therefore, we make decisions together as a body. We work together as a body. We do ministry together as a body. Another name, you may have heard of this, for this type of church governance is called congregationalism which, Lord willing, you can see or, or have been more fully convinced it's the prescription of the Scriptures for the new covenant people of God, the local church, because of the new nature given to every individual member of the one body. It hasn't just been given to a group of men or, or a clergy or a bishop. It's been given to all of us together. It's the entire church composed of spirit-filled believers that do the work of ministry. I mean, think about what we've seen over these past several weeks, Okay. If we want to see the work of ministry in action, we could go to Matthew 28, where the church is called to make disciples and, and baptize them, to receive them into membership, to bring more saints into the body, to teach them to do all accordance with what Christ has commanded. Or we could go to Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, where the church is called to discipline and excommunicate unrepentant professors who claim something false about Christ as they walk in their ungodliness. We, the church, maintain our purity in discernment and, and not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine about, about ourselves or deceived with human cunning. And I want you to see this one. Flip over to Galatians 1, verses 8 through 9. This actually was a shock to me. It's the word of God. Galatians 1, verse 8 through 9. What does Paul say? Paul says, but even if we, that is the apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, the church, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Consider him accursed. Church, here we see the saints doing the work of ministry in that together they have the authority to judge even an apostle or an angel's message. And if it be false message, a false gospel, the church has the authority to reject that message despite the messenger, whether it be an angel or an, or an apostle. Paul even subjects himself to this judgment by the church. Even if we, he says, preach a false gospel, consider us accursed. Church, we have this kind of authority given to us by Christ to judge messages, to discern the spirits, to practice these things together, to maintain our purity. And this is important that we do so faithfully and, and carefully and wisely. Wellam, the theologian that I mentioned earlier, summarizes it this way, and I think this is helpful. It explains why, and I think this, I had this on the screen, Tyler, I'm sorry. It explains why most of the New Testament letters were written to local churches and not merely to church offices or some larger ecclesiastical body. He writes this, the letters were written to instruct the entire congregation of their responsibilities to govern themselves to protect themselves against false teachers and to watch over people's lives. 
God's purpose for his regenerate people is to restore them to what he intended for humanity in the first place, namely to act as his image bearers who exercise dominion over this world for the sake of his glory. All humanity was originally called to govern, but now the task falls to members of the new covenant. In other words, it involves the entire community, not just a few within the community. Everyone is involved in this image-bearing work of ruling, judging, and putting all things under our feet as we live under the lordship of Christ, the pioneer, champion, and trailblazer of our salvation. We all have a responsibility together. This is our authority as the congregation. Now, the third sphere of authority is what I'm calling appointed authority within the body. Okay? That is, Christ has not only ordained that the local church possess authority itself, everything that I've said, but that there would be offices of authority that the local church is to appoint within itself. The local church appoints offices within itself of authority. So look back with me to Ephesians 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says this, And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints. Now, here in Ephesians 4, Paul is not describing the offices of authority within the church. It's it's describing, as we've seen, as we've discussed, Christ giving gifts to his church to equip them for ministry. Here in verse 11, the broad connection I want to make is that Christ himself gives the church gifted individuals. And the purpose of giving the church these gifted individuals is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body. Jesus gives a variety of gifts for the flourishing of the local church, but something I want to make clear is that not every gifting comes with respective authority. We can only see one office of authority here to be appointed within the New Testament local church, and that is the office of an elder also called the pastor, also called an overseer. The diaconate is an office in the New Testament local church, but they do not exercise this kind of authority within the congregation that I'm speaking of. They serve. They're designed to serve in a variety of ways so that the congregation can thrive together under the authority of their elders, under the authority of Christ. So I'm not going to make mention of the diaconate at this point, just specifically the office of elder in the local church. The office of elder is one of appointed authority because the Lord commands his church through his word to recognize and appoint qualified men to be their elders. This is done for the growth and equipping of the local church. Look with me over at 1 Peter 5. I want to read this. 1 Peter 5 verse 1. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He tells the elders, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This here 
shows us the manner in which elders exercise authority, namely shepherding and exercising oversight willingly, eagerly, and being an example to the flock. Well, examples of what? Christ-likeness. Examples of Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, we are to obey these leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over our souls. Souls of the, the gathered church. Now flip over with me to 1 Timothy. Chapter 3, qualifications for overseers. Even there you see qualifications for deacons. We're not talking about that today. But specifically here, 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse uh, 2. Therefore an overseer, here's their qualifications, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well. Fast forward to six. He must not be a recent convert. And then verse seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I wanted to bring this up with regards to an elder's qualifications, but with respect to the elder's qualifications, they are the same qualifications you would expect of anyone who claims to be a Christian. Shouldn't we assume that Christians are acting above reproach? That they're faithful in their marriages, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable? All these things should be expected of a Christian, except for one, being able to teach. Not that we all shouldn't thrive, shouldn't strive to be good teachers of the word. But here, a qualification of an elder is being able to teach. So it is in this gifting that we are able to understand the proper authority that an elder is to exercise, okay? One author puts it this way. The proper distinction when it comes to elder authority is between the possession of authority and the leading in the use of authority, okay? Possession of authority, this is what the author says. The whole congregation, elders and members together, possess the keys of the kingdom. But the elders have the task of training equipping and leading the congregation to use the keys in a right manner. The congregation possesses and exercises, and the elders show them how. Elders equip the saints to do the work of ministry by knowing the scriptures, by walking in the spirit, by praying without ceasing and teaching the church what to do while training them how to do it. This sphere of authority is important and and shouldn't be disregarded mainly because Christ has structured the body in this way for her flourishing. A priesthood of believers taught and trained and led by gifted men among them. Wellam again puts it this way. His stuff is great. I'm going to quote him again. Elders function as fellow believers. Gifted by God for a specific task to lead the people of God but in concert with the entire spirit-born and gifted congregation. Both elders and the congregation are accountable to the lordship of Christ, but the congregation remains the final earthly court of appeal. To give this authority to only the elders undermines what the church is as God's new covenant people. We've been made a, a priesthood, all of us together. We all possess the authority, but at the same time, we appoint an authority to teach us and train us how to do it. 
Godly elders help the church grow in godliness and exercise the keys in a godly manner. That is to say, we ought not to view the authority of one at the cost of the other. Both are essential together for the overall health of the body. Both are necessary for the local church to grow up into the head. Both parties, elders and congregation, according to verse, chapter 4, verse 16, are to work together properly so that the whole body will build itself up in love. Authority of the head, authority of the body, appointed authority of the elders. Which brings us to the second half of our time, the second main point. Harmony within authority. Look with me again to chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Okay? 11 through 16. Christ's desire in giving gifts to his church, specifically in gifting them with leaders, qualified leaders, is one, verse 12, to equip the saints, that is the whole church, for the work of ministry. Two, the building up of the body of Christ as a whole. Three, growth in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That is the whole, we are all drinking deeply of the gospel, believing it, trusting it, encouraging one another to do the same. Four, maturity in Christ. Five, ultimately to attain to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. When the congregation and the elders properly exercise their authority together in submission to Christ's ultimate authority, as Christ has ordained it, the local church functions as it was designed toward these desired ends. We desire for these things to happen in our church. It is, after all, according to verse 15, a command of Christ through the Apostle Paul that we would speak the truth in love, that we would grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body. Do you see all this working together, all this cycle here? Christ is giving these gifts and through these gifts, these members of the whole body, when the whole body is working together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that is every single one of the members of this church that Christ has gifted to this church and has gifted them to serve this church, we're all working together when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The growth comes when we're all functioning within the church under the authority of Christ in the ways in which Christ has commanded us. This brings harmony within the body. So in our remaining time, I want to I try to make concrete connections between the three spheres of authority that we see so that we can all know how we individually and corporately ought to submit to Christ as our head, how we as a congregation ought to exercise our authority within the body as the body, and finally, how we as a congregation submit to our elders within our body. Okay, so first connection we need to make between Christ and the church, Christ and the local church. The relationship begins first, as we've seen, as Christ saves sinners and brings them together in local churches. That's where it begins. He builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel and the local church gathers together to continue proclaiming this gospel and bringing others in who believe it. We cannot overlook this point because it's right here where the transition happens between Christ as authority over us because he's an authority over all things and Christ being the authority over us because he's, we are members of his body, his church. As sinful human beings, we don't want to be in the first category. 
If I'm being honest, we don't want to be there. We want to be in the second because Ephesians 5, Christ loves his body. He loves it. He nourishes it. He cherishes it. And we are members of the body that he nourishes and cherishes. And apart from faith in his saving work, we remain under God's judgment to be put under his feet as a footstool. His church isn't there because his church is united to him and we will be reigning with him. Second, the relationship continues as Christ sanctifies the local church and the local church pursues sanctification. Christ sanctifies, we pursue sanctification. Here's an interplay between his authority and our submission. Christ finished the work of salvation through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, and those who repent of their sins and put their faith in this gospel are justified by faith, Romans 3.28. That is, their sins are forgiven because they're paid in full. They receive Christ's righteousness as their own, and in Christ's righteousness, God sees us as perfect, as his children, holy and blameless. But at the same time, as we walk with Christ in this life, we're being sanctified. That is, we are being progressively made holy in this body, this body of flesh that we have, Paul says. So Christ makes us holy, and then he commands us to be holy as he is holy. Peter says that in 1 Peter 1. And our submission to him looks like obedience to repent and pursue him by faith for the holiness that only he can offer and the holiness that only he can produce in us. This leads to the third connection. Christ leads, commands, and directs his church by his spirit and through his word. To put it short, what Christ says goes. Submission to God's word, Christ commands therein, is no options, is no option for the church. It is an obligation for his church. What he's commanded in his word goes, and his spirit teaches us, he guides us, he directs us, he empowers us, he gifts us in all the ways necessary for us to be built up, for us to be sanctified in him, growing in unity out of love for Christ and love for one another until the Lord returns. And lastly here on the relation between Christ and the church, we see this, to be, to be clear. The church submits in all things to Christ. We submit to Christ. It may seem obvious, but I wanted to say it again. Christ's local church, all of Christ's local churches, us included, are commanded to submit to him both individually as our head, as members of his body, and corporately, as his, his body gathered. And thanks be to God, we have his spirit who empowers us in every way to submit to God's word and live it out. If it was by our own strength, we would never be able to do it. I don't know if you've tried, but we'll never be able to do it by our own strength. But thanks be to God, Christ has sent us the helper, the paraclete, the spirit of God who is in us, with us, and will bring to completion the work that the Lord Jesus has started in our hearts. Second connection we need to see, the local church within itself. We saw the church in Christ. Now we need to see the connection, how it all works, the local church within itself. First, we've said this plenty of times, 
There are many members of this one body, and we all together are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's out of reverence for Christ that we submit to one another. Not because we always want to, not because we always desire it, but it's out of reverence for the Lord Jesus that we submit to one another as a body. We've, we've as a church, formalized our submission to one another and what that means on paper. That's called our church covenant. This isn't a, having a church covenant isn't required in the scriptures, but it is wise and it's a prudent way that we can take all the scriptures and all that they command us to do as a church together and lay it out clearly and concisely and make promises to one another to that end. In submitting to one another, we're making promises and keeping promises to obey all that the scriptures teach about what we ought to do together in terms of gathering together, loving one another, keeping watch over one another confronting sin in one another, encouraging one another, exercising the keys together by proclaiming the gospel to each other and to the world, safeguarding the gospel together, disciplining one another to stay faithful to the gospel. All of this is important for our life, our purity, our unity together as one body. With that, the second connection here, the local church is self-governed. That is to say, There is no hierarchical structure above us that we ought to submit to, whether that be a clergy or a pope or even a presbytery of elders. We are what's called congregational, and that that revolves around everything we believe about the priesthood of all believers. It's not just because it's a good way to do things, to, to democratically make decisions, but this is what it means to be a priesthood of all believers together. We've all been indwelt by the Spirit together. The structure of The New Testament church looks like this. It's not one guy who's responsible for for governing, not a group of guys. It's the entire church that is responsible for governing itself. And, And we saw that in the passages about the responsibilities of the church as we exercise authority together. Another way to put that is, as as a gathered church, we have final authority in matters pertaining to the exercising of the keys. That is to the purity of the gospel that we preach and believe here. Every matter about the witness to our community. Every matter about our health together. Because, I would say this is a connection, I wouldn't call it a connection, but this is, this is a natural application of the church being self-governed. What does the church do? The local church protects itself from false gospels. We saw that in Galatians 1 just a second ago. The entire church is held accountable for the messages they put up with. We're called together to judge the validity, the truth of the messages we hear. And I would encourage each of you, this means both individually and corporately. The messages we're hearing individually out there and bringing here, the messages that we're putting up with and receiving here that we're taking out there. This is encouragement to all of us individually and corporately to be on guard about these things because we all together need to be on guard. 1 John 4, as we've seen, test the spirits to see if they're from God. Every one of us is responsible for this. Another natural application is that the local church protects its purity in receiving and disciplining members. This is to say we desire in every way to maintain what is called regenerate church membership. That is the people we bring in as members. To the best of our knowledge, we want to be able to say we believe that they are genuinely born-again Christians. They have the Spirit. 
In this way, we as a church guard the front door of membership, so to speak. We need to be careful, watchful as we assess the people who we are bringing in. Not that we want to be exclusive in a sense of, of pushing people away, but exclusive in the sense of we want to make sure these people are genuinely Christians who believe the gospel that we're letting in because with them comes everything that they believe. And we're responsible for that. And to be clear, just one more time, it doesn't exclude being gracious and loving to people. It is for those very reasons that we ought to be careful, not just for the person, bringing that person into our body, but the body that we're already in, that we're bringing them into, that we love and we want to protect. The same is true for discipling members within us. We are responsible for the purity of this local church, every single one of us. And the last natural application. The local church is commanded to accumulate for themselves godly leaders who will lead in submission to Christ for the spiritual good of the church. Accumulate godly leaders. Paul says this negatively to Timothy when he says in the last days, people will accumulate for themselves ungodly men, people who teach things that they want to hear. So the negative of that is we ought to accumulate godly men, qualified men to teach us what we need from the word of God. This comes off the tail end of judging false gospels and those who teach them. We ought to be ready simultaneously to rejoice in the good work of one who knows, can articulate clearly, and boldly proclaim the true gospel. A man who's qualified as an elder and can teach in these kinds of ways. We ought to rejoice if we have these gifts from Christ. But at the same time, the gospel that we've all been saved by and and are in submission to, that we know people who don't preach that, we ought to reject that. True godly leaders are the kind of leaders that we desire in our church. Godly leaders who submit to Christ because it is the accumulation of those kinds of leaders that will lead our entire church to holiness, to godliness. Third connection, the local church and its elders. This is the last connection. We saw Christ in the local church. We saw the local church within itself. And now we're seeing the local church and its elders, how they relate. First, local churches are commanded by Christ to recognize and appoint for themselves godly qualified men as elders. This requires discernment by every one of us. It requires care. It requires genuine love for every member of this body in terms of protecting the purity of this church. Paul is clear to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, to Titus in Titus 1. Peter is clear to the church in 1 Peter 5 that these men should be qualified and they give the qualifications. This means when it comes to criteria that a man should be judged by, whether or not we should appoint him as an elder, we go to the scriptures to see. We don't go to credentials or experience, or gifting. We go to the scriptures and judge the man by the scriptures. Which is what we do for ourselves as well, is it not? We put ourselves next to the scriptures, what the scriptures say goes. This is a weighty responsibility for the church because the elders we appoint here lead us in a direction. We need to be sure they are qualified, called by God, and called by us for this task because when we appoint them, the Lord commands us to submit to them. But if we've recognized that they're qualified and 
and they're good for the task, gifted for the task, we ought to submit to them joyfully. Because this is for our good. Second, the local church is commanded by Christ to submit to godly elders for their spiritual good. According to Hebrews 13, 17, this is what the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Peter wants the church to have an advantage, and it would be no, of no advantage to them if, if they were, were living in such a way, in an unsubmissive way, that the elders were not able to do it with joy, but were rather groaning. Because honestly, church, right there it says, we will have to give an account for the church's souls. Elders give an account for that before God. This is a weighty task. The calling of an elder is heavy. This is a good work, but this is a hard work. And one way to serve our elders, after we've determined they are qualified, they are gifted, and we've called them to this work, we've appointed them to the work, one way to do that, well, is to make it a joy for them because it's to our advantage. 1 Timothy 5, 17. We didn't see this, but I'll read it. Let the elders who rule well, okay, they're, they're doing what they've been called to do and appointed to do. They're doing it well. Let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Don't miss it, church. Elders who rule well are worthy of honor. And this is a good thing that reflects back on the church as a whole. Because we've recognized these elders within us. They're gifted within us. Christ has given us these gifts. And when they rule well, it's a glory to God. Praise God. And it reflects back on our church. But farther than that, it does and it should produce praise within us to Christ for watching us, keeping watch over our souls as our great shepherd and giving us shepherds, under shepherds, to take care of us. Now, the question that arises, what if we appoint someone that disqualifies themselves? That's the third thing. The local church is commanded by Christ to rebuke and remove wayward, ungodly elders for their spiritual good. Right after Paul encourages the church about elders who rule well, right here in 1 Timothy 5, he brings this up in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Church, we ought not to forget that even our elders are sinners. I am a sinner. Chad and Bob, we are all sinners, saved by the same gospel that you have been saved by. We shouldn't hold our elders on a pedestal of perfection. But we should expect them to be qualified, as we've discerned that they were. Men of habitual godliness, we could say, who live exemplary lives of repentance and trust in the gospel that we believe. It should seem out of place. It should. To bring a charge against an elder because of the process of discernment of the qualifications for the office that presumably led up to their appointment. It should seem strange that they would be charged like this which is why two or three are required in the context. But even still, 
The church is to hear it and judge it for themselves, just like the disciplinary process we saw in Matthew 18 for any Christian in this congregation who claims Christ but lives contrary to that proclamation. Elders are not above that process, but are subject to it like everyone else is within this body. Final relation here. Elders exercise their authority in submission to the lordship of Christ as they imitate Christ's authority over his church. Elders exercise derived authority from Christ and the local church that appoints them. This authority is an authority of counsel. Hear me this. Pastors, elders have an authority of counsel as they shepherd us. That is, they lead us and train us as saints of this local church for the work of ministry by teaching us, by persuading us from the word of God. One author puts it this way. He says, elders train you how to do your job. <laughs> well, if, if, if this is the case, it's of utmost importance that we appoint men who are qualified and able to do just that for us. If elders aren't training us properly, we aren't functioning properly. And I would argue no elder can train properly unless he is first in full submission to the lordship of Christ living a life seeking to imitate Christ in every way, including the way in which Christ exercises his authority over his church. That is one of love, sacrifice, one in which he nourishes and cherishes his body. The elders are to do it just like that. Final comments before we, we close. Bringing everything to a close, authority within the local church is good. It is good. It's ordained by God for the growth and flourishing of his church. If you wanted to put a label on what we've been talking about, this form of church governance, it would be called plural elder-led congregationalism. How the church is structured, what it does, how it functions, who leads it, who runs it, all of these questions are answered when we consider everything we believe about Christ, the work he's accomplished for us, the new covenant people he's creating, the church he's building, the authority he exercises over his church, and the authority he has commanded his gathered church to exercise, the authority Christ himself has given to godly qualified elders within his church, and the command for his church, his body, to both to submit to these elders and all the responsibilities he calls the entire church to bear for appointing these elders. All of it comes together to look like Christ as the authority over every individual member of his one body, Christ's delegation of his authority to the entire body, and within this, his appointment of authority of the church, sorry, his appointment of authority to lead his body. And when it's functioning as God designed it to, Ephesians 4, 16, Every member of the church functioning as God has gifted them and in the roles he has put them, the church builds itself up in love. That's what the Lord wants for us. And therefore, that's what we should want ourselves. Let's pursue this together. Let's pray.